This episode of the Expression Radio podcast was made possible through sponsorship provided by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. To learn more about the AIG, the programs it supports, or to become a member, please go to aig.org.au. That is aig.org.au. Hi, my name is Ahmad. Hi, my name is Steve. And this is Exploration Radio, a podcast focusing on the past, present, and the future of exploration. Over the four years we've been producing this podcast, Steve and I have often been asked why we decided to start Exploration Radio. It seems like some of our listeners are interested in knowing where did the idea for this podcast come from? What were some of the challenges we encountered in the early days? What would we do differently? What would we keep the same? And what does the future of this podcast look like? So when the AIG gave us a chance to join them for a webinar and let them and some of our listeners ask us questions about anything they ever wanted to know about Exploration Radio, we felt it was a pretty good opportunity to finally indulge a lot of people's curiosity. For once, Steve and I were on the other side of the mic answering questions, and you, our listeners, were the ones asking them. So this week's episode is the audio recording of that webinar that was hosted by Wendy Beats and recorded in May 2020. If you wanted to see the video recording of this webinar, then we have a link to it on our website in the show notes of this episode. Now let's get on with the show. Thank you all of our WA attendees to our Megwa Tech Talk this evening. Hopefully people are joining us from outside of WA, but I'd just like to welcome Ahmed and Steve from Exploration Radio, and they have kindly agreed to give us a very informal discussion on Exploration Radio this evening. I'm sure you all have a lot of questions. So what I've asked Ahmed and Steve to do is to give us a brief discussion of how the whole idea of Exploration Radio came about, and then I'll open the questions and then open the floor to your questions. Sounds good. That's perfect. And I guess we should say that this is supposed to be a presentation, but in reality, Steve and I have not prepared anything. This is not a presentation, but it's really a chance for the attendees to ask us questions. Like I said in the post, we do get asked a lot of times things about podcasts, and uh, we've never really answered them aside from just individually giving the answers. So, so this is a chance for people to kind of ask us and you know, other people can kind of listen to it as well. To your question about how this started, yeah, Steve, jump in if I forget some stuff. So we're now in our third year as it is. So we started this in 2016, I think it was. We started off with a, a one-season kind of run of, I think it was eight episodes in the end. And really the idea about doing a podcast, I guess, wasn't something that we initially came up with. Uh, we had many kind of ideas about what we wanted to do. I think we talked about newsletters, like a website things like that. And ultimately, we did kind of come to a podcast. And that's largely because, A, like Steve and I like talking to each other. So it was from that aspect, it was easy. And we're not great writers. So we didn't really want to do a blog, or I particularly didn't want to do a blog. And both of us are avid fans of podcasts. And I think we thought it was a medium that was perfectly suited to what we wanted to do, really. So one of the things that really motivated us uh, a little bit during that last downturn was probably a little bit of time for navel gazing, but an opportunity really to address something that we thought was a fairly serious issue, which is that in the modern world, there's really no media to talk about the sort of things that we talk about. There are ways to learn geology and there are other ways you can learn geology. You can read papers, plenty of great presentations, including online these days. 
but there's really no way to talk about the sort of what you might call the softer side of exploration. But that's, in fact, what the majority of people were talking to us about. That's what most people were interested in. They were interested in not just things like social license and environment and the like, but actually the psychology of what an explorer really is. You just won't find it anywhere else. I think one thing I was going to say is like, so one of the things that we did talk about why we wanted a podcast is that, you know, when you went to conferences or like get togethers, it was the stuff that we talked to people over like a drink or a coffee or stuff like that that we found the most interesting. And that was something that people weren't presenting on. So we wanted to try to come up with a format or a medium where people could have those conversations with us and maybe other people could be voyeurs to that conversation. And that's really why I think the podcast kind of as a medium kind of ticked a lot of boxes in that sense. Just to riff on that, the other one that I quite like is I think we live in a world that's increasingly devoid of trust. I'm not exaggerating when I suggest that the way we sort of commonly do media is very much PR related, which is one way. But you can see there's a real rise of trust trying to be bought or developed by podcasters. And the beauty of the podcast as a medium is that there's nowhere to hide. You listen to Ahmad and I, and we're just talking. And you can take us, whether you like it or not, based on what we talk about. There is no vested interest in here in trying to get across a single message. It's just honest chatting. And that develops into a long form. And I think people have thought, you know, there is no room for long form in this world anymore. It's all about tweets. It's all about short papers. I think you only got to look at recent aspects related to things like Joe Rogan to find that that's not true. People want nuance. They want long form. Just one last point, which I think Steve made really well, is that podcast probably allowed us to dive in and out of topics as well. Yeah, it allows a like an unstructured conversation to occur between two people a lot more easily than, say, a written format. And we all, as listeners, get to be the fly on the wall who get a very personal conversation between you and your interviewee who has a lot to share, which is a great opportunity for us all. So uh, I'll just kick off with my questions now. So I've just compiled a few questions to kick off the uh, discussion with. So which are your favorite broadcasts? I'll start with you, Steve. And why would you say that they're your favorites? I'm actually going to choose one that I was fairly involved in. My favorite podcast is actually with Ahmed's uncle, Saad, and Alan Moore. It, it was very early on when we were still learning our game in terms of audio quality, but it was just such a genuine interview. So what people won't work out is I'm actually in that interview, but I didn't speak for the entirety of the show. I actually listened. I forgot I was a podcaster for, for an hour or so and just listened to just what I thought was just a story that I myself wanted to hear. And that's why that's why I choose that one. And I think to the point where I think Steve was so quiet that at one moment we thought he had some audio, uh, like actual technical difficulties and he had fallen through. I'll have to uh, go and, and research that one, find that one. Yeah, that's right. It's way in our back catalogue. It's, I think, episode <laughs> two, I think. So if you can get past the shitty audio, it's a great story. <laughs> I'm sure it adds to the atmosphere. So is there anyone you haven't yet interviewed that you would particularly like to speak to? And perhaps they're listening and they'll give you a call. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I'll say this. I mean, this is probably a really far off goal. But when we did start, we did have these delusions of grandeur that we we're going to get people like Friedland, like Robert Friedland on as well. But in saying that, I guess one of the things that I've kind of learned along this process is that actually not just getting people like Robert Friedland is the most interesting aspect. I think there's actually people much further down kind of the industry food chain that have some interesting perspectives as well. And that's something I guess we've learned. Like I really enjoyed talking to John Van. People will probably work that out. That was actually a three-hour conversation that John and I had, and we decided that people wouldn't want to listen to three hours, but, but John and I loved it. And that was, it was just a personal conversation. And I wish that sometimes Ahmed and I have these really long chats, and sometimes we wish we recorded them first. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes they are pretty boring, but sometimes they are somewhat interesting. <laughs> and you have to record them all from now on. Yeah, that's right. So we've got pretty close to getting Rob Friedland, and obviously the other one that comes to mind is Mark Creasy. I work with and joint venture with Mark and I've many times heard stories that I just wish there was a mic around and, and a record button. So of your interviews, are there any that you'd like to speak to again other than each other? Yeah, I mean, I think there's tons of people. Yeah, one of the individuals that we interviewed very early was Dave Kingston. And I think we would have loved to interview him again because I think he is such an interesting yeah, individual, particularly how his career kind of panned out. We had Samantha Copeland, who was a lady that talked about serendipity on one of our episodes. We would definitely have her on again because I don't think we maybe did justice to the topic. And, and I guess one of the things that we're quite cognizant of is that some of the interviews at the start probably weren't very good because we were still learning our craft. So probably any, anyone from episode zero to 10, we should probably have on again. You remember talking to Headley Witter early on, a lot of people were critical of my sound quality, but people should realize when we did the Headley Witter one, I was sitting in my car uh, with the earmuffs and literally trying to keep sound out, sitting in the garage at my office. So early on, we simply just had to do the best we could just to try and get the best possible quality we could. Excellent. Well, you've got to start somewhere and uh, I'm sure you're, you're proud of how far you've come. I think perhaps I'll put my questions on hold because we seem to have quite a few questions um, collecting here in our question and answer section. So I will just unmute the guest. Can you hear me, guys? Yes. yes? My name's Andrew Cuthbertson, and I congratulate you on where you're headed with talking about human stories. But I think you're missing a key point is that there's a wider issue that both the younger generation of technical professionals coming through, but also the general public are interested in what you've got to say because they want to understand. We, we as an industry don't communicate with the public at large very well. And I think the what you're doing with these talkback shows is actually communicating in a manner that the general public can pick up and understand. And I think it's the, the same issue that you've got with the topic you're uh, doing yourself, Sam Walsh, and I think uh, there, Steve McIntosh, Rio, and some of the uh, other folks, they hit the mark because the younger generation of technical professionals coming through, they, they're, it gives them a connection of the lessons learned in the past. You know, there's nothing new except that which is forgotten. And a lot of your talks have been very good talking to people about the lessons that they have learned through it and, and communicates on. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things, if you notice, is that we do keep a lot of technical kind of jargon out of a lot of topics. And a part of the reason for doing that is that, you know, we want it to be somewhat inclusive, that anyone can kind of partake and digest that that content. And it is something we do get a little bit criticized for, that, you know, we could dig into a little bit more of the 
the technical now certain things, you know, more into the geoscience, but we consciously actually try to stay away from it because Steve gave the example of the episode about the discovery story of Reykjavik, the deposit in, in Pakistan. And, you know, we didn't talk about anything technical in that episode at all. And that was actually by design because I think there's a more human element of that story that I think is more interesting rather than how many samples or, you know, like whatever they collected. So we consciously actually keep that side out of it for that reason. I think you're hitting the mark. I just encourage you to think of a wider audience for the general public, which helps the industry communicate and build social license, for want of a better word. And it's, sorry, I interrupted you, Steve. Yeah, no, no. So look, we totally agree, Andrew. In fact, uh, we went to IMARC last year. We were invited. Uh, we were amongst the, the hoo-ha. In fact, it was earlier this year, wasn't it? And we know we've got an advocacy problem. Steve McIntosh talks about you know, a lost decade, the last 10 years in exploration and mining. We all know we've got a major problem and we all know we're not doing a very good job about it. One of the things that really motivated me early on in the podcast is I like telling stories and I really like listening to stories. I like the campfire camaraderie of being a geologist in the exploration world. And I think it's missing. And people accuse me a little bit of being a little bit romantic about it. And I don't apologize for it because I think it's what inspires people. And I think we're doing ourselves a massive disservice as an industry at the moment by not explaining what we do. And I really think if we want to inspire a new generation that wants to get beyond the current issues they face, then they've got to want to be part of it and they've got to be inspired by it. So we've got to get beyond talking to each other. Thanks very much, Jess. Your comments, Andrew. And John Taylor has a question here. Do you interview overseas exploration people, such as people in the Canadian exploration industry? Uh, the short answer, John, is yes, we do. I think that was just a more of a logistical problem, really, at the start. You know, like we just focused on largely people in our backyard just because of the atrocious time zone difference that sits between here and Vancouver. But earlier this year, we did a trip through uh, North America. So we went through Vancouver, went to PDAC, and went through the West Coast of the U.S. as well. Uh, and we ended up doing somewhere between 20 to 25 interviews in that run. So these are all interviews that are now backlog and we're kind of editing them. So, so you'll see a lot more people from the Canadian side come on. And that was a conscious push as well that Canada and the U.S. is a growing audience for us. So it's a bit of more of a quid pro quo to get people from there as well. So there are more people listening to podcasts, obviously. Podcast is a huge industry in North America. It's a Billy embryonic industry here in Australia. So for those who don't know, Joe Rogan, who's the world's biggest podcaster, just sold his business for $100 million. And, and Joe Rogan, a lot of people ask me who he is, but it's bigger than Game of Thrones. He's the biggest thing in media in the world right now. So North America, not just as a storytelling location, but as an audience is pretty important to us. And I had a question. Which of your interviews have you found to be the most popular of all your podcasts? I think John Van and John Romsky have probably been the most popular ones, I think, up until now. I guess we do get interest in episodes for different reasons. You know, we interviewed a, a gentleman named Christian Jervelend, who's an economist in Denmark. And that was quite a popular episode in Europe and in Scandinavia because the topics that we talked about were more relevant to him. But as a general sense, I think the John Mann episode and John Ronsky, I think have probably been the most popular one. And Mark Bennett as well, just because I think of the type of individual Mark is, the type of stuff he said was obviously relevant to a lot of people. He tells it how it is. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. A little bit of flash in the pan is always good when you're doing a radio show. 
Are there any questions from the floor? John, you had your hand up. Yes, John Taylor uh, from New Zealand. Are any of your podcasts aimed at school audiences, encouraging students to go into geology? I mean, it seems to me that um, there needs to be some way of encouraging young people at school to see mining for what it is and exploration for what it is. You know, I think this type of media podcast is obviously a way to encourage students to look in and decide that exploration is a, a thing they want to do in the future. It's a great point, John. We probably explicitly haven't created content to target kids in that sense. But in saying that, I guess when we started, our kind of mandate was that our target audience would really be people in their kind of 20s at the start of their career. But it is a valid point. One of the reasons why we were kind of targeting people early in their career is that, you know, we do have a problem kind of retaining people that come into the industry. And by allowing people to have maybe a wider view on uh, what the industry is about, maybe they're not just going to be like stuck sitting in the Pilbara looking at the working end of an air core rig and not know what the hell they're doing. By them getting a little bit more rounded view of the industry, maybe it does encourage them to stay in the industry a little bit longer. Yeah, that's a good point, Ahmed. And Bert has asked, would you be interested in interviewing Andrew Forrest? Yeah, for sure. Bert, do you want to line up the interview and we'll do it tomorrow? <laughs> so I'll just type the same thing. Some of the interviews, obviously, we've used our personal contacts. One of the things I've done of recent is really get into that North American audience, which is getting beyond our own personal networks. It's easy to talk to somebody you know. It's actually more difficult to talk to someone you've never met. And one of the things we've found in you might notice in some episodes, you might not, is uh, some people are quite nervous on these podcasts and it takes them a while to settle in. If you know them, you can cut through that stuff quite a lot easier, but we can't live on on the people we know forever. Yes, and it must be much easier to give a one-on-one interview in person rather than using, uh, say, webinar like this media. It must be slightly more difficult. How have you found it? You mean when you do interviews remotely rather than when we do them uh, live? Yes. Presumably, you don't often get an opportunity to do a personal live interview. Yeah, I guess if you'd asked me at the start, I would have said that like doing live interviews is the best thing we could do. But I might actually change my opinion in saying that actually remote interviews are not as bad as I would have imagined. Because when you're doing a remote interview, you know, we often do them without video. And what I found is that I end up being a, maybe a better listener when we do remote interviews without video, because I'm just really focusing on what the person's saying. Whereas in live interviews, I think you have a little bit more of a dynamic going. So they tend to be good for different purposes. Yeah, and that's something that we've had to adapt. We've gone along. Originally, we only did live interviews, but we struggled when we did remote interviews after that. But I think it's something that we've gotten better with as we've gone along. Yes, one of those things that improves with practice. So, Andrew, you had another question. Yes, thanks. Um, You've mentioned in the recent past, I think it was after the John Van interview, about sponsorship. Uh, And uh, I think that raises the big issue, is the future sustainability of what you're trying to do as an initiative is funding. Uh, how are you funding? I, I believe there's funding from the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. What are your plans in uh, getting the initiative on a more sustainable footing? Huh? Yeah, well, you've asked the million-dollar question, really. Yeah, so there's good and bad, but we were talking about like all the good about podcasts. But one of the, like I guess, the bad thing about podcasts is that it is a very unsustainable uh, model or a, a business or an entity without sponsorship. So it's something that we struggle with because sponsorship often comes with strings. I mean, the AIG has been great in that they give us these funds and they basically have no strings attached. You know, we can do what we want. We can talk about what we want. 
We can talk about things that may not be directly in line with what the AIG is doing, and they don't you know, muzzle us in that sense in uh, any respect. Whereas sponsorship from other sources does come with a little bit of control. So one of the things that we do talk about is that we're happy to take any sponsorship because it does mean that we can keep producing this content. But you can't get creative control out of it because I guess our biggest thing is we don't have any vested interest in our uh, in what we produce at all. So it's a good question. We struggle with this quite a lot. You know, we, in the past, we have kind of refused sponsorship from large companies purely because of the fact that you know, we might want to cover topics that are not directly in line with stuff that they want to do. And then there might be some awkward kind of you know, area there that we might have to navigate. So the pool of probably sponsorships that we can take because of the decision we've made is pretty small in that sense. It's a major issue because the whole point of podcasting is really to get into these areas where you don't have vested interest away from the PR. We build trust, not because we tell you something, but because you're just actively learning and listening, passively listening. And uh, if we have sponsors, then that comes with some form of agenda. Now, the question I would put actually back to you guys is whether we are being too rigorous with this and whether there is an opportunity to take greater sponsorship. And this is a problem that's across the world. There's a lot of podcasts that will refuse to take sponsors, but then they become unsustainable. And there are other podcasts that could start up that are essentially have vested interest built into them. It really is actually up to our audience whether they feel we need sponsors or not. And it's that battle between sustainability and invested interests. Well, I think I appreciate your answer there. I'd put it to you. I think one of my biggest criticisms of the mining exploration companies is a lot of social signaling rather than actually doing things. So I think what's so refreshing what you're doing is the same with, I think, in journalists, uh, and I, I view you as journalists uh, in the wider world, is the freedom of the press. And I think if you look at it in that context, you know, that's what you're ultimately wanting to do and that the sponsors are going to come in there is the freedom, well, as long as it's not being so slanderous, I think, you, you know, you might hit a mark there. But it gets on to this whole issue of graduate recruitment and focusing there. But I'd say, suggest you, you know, there's that dialogue to gain the experience before the older generation sign out. I'd put it to you is that the attraction for it is the frankness of the discussion. And you're clearly hitting a market. I don't know whether you keep a record of how many are listening in, but it, it's going to be that balance that... You know, I wouldn't give up the hope of uh, the sponsorship, but I, what I'd put to you is that excellent presenters is a good pro quo, but maybe you need to build a wider team of people who've got the experience to go out and get uh, the sponsorship for you. And I think that's how the thing grows, is to build up a team that's supporting you with a wider set of skills, if that makes sense. That's a good point, yeah. What do you think about that, Ahmad? Andrew's points are exactly right. So from our point of view, there are reasons for why we have been terrible at sponsorship. And largely because at the start, we kind of gave ourselves a goal that until we got a certain number of episodes, we weren't really going to screw around too much with a lot of the other things. The aim was to try to get good content out as much as we could. And you know, it's great that Andrew says that he thinks of us as journalists, but the, the point of it is that we were not podcasters. We weren't journalists. We weren't anything like that. So at the start, we kind of really focused on making sure that the content was good because if the content's terrible, like, you know, no one's going to be listening to stuff anyway. And now that we're getting to a point where we have content and we feel comfortable in the type of content we create and how we create it and how we put it out, now I think it's something that we will definitely test the boundaries to see, you know, what type of sponsorship we can get. Do we get better at marketing? 
Most conferences are now trying to contact us and we have some engagement with them about going to conferences and trying to use that as an avenue. So my only answer, which is not a really good one, is that we haven't done this because we were just really focused on kind of the content side of things. Like Steve said, we continuously debate this about which sponsors are right and which aren't. And I think we will definitely test it out to see how well it will work, what our listeners think. Sometimes listeners might like it and sometimes they won't. But I guess as long as people are aware that there is kind of like a background side of things that we have to deal with as well, to some degree. Could I just uh, put it to you that you should think of yourselves as like a uh, new junior explorer. They've got a great idea and it moves forward on there. But in order well, to get into the stage, our first rate is better than 1%. That's, that's <laughs> the well, well, my answer to that is uh, I don't worry about those success rates because I employ people that I think are going to beat the odds. I think the point I'd put to you is that just as uh, juniors, and it's always fun to go through annual reports year to year. Because the ones that survive, companies that survive year to year are the ones that have got the great idea and it's building. You know, the long-term sustainability of juniors is, I think you're close to getting to the point, is you've got to build a wider team to, for other people to share the vision with different sets of complementing skills. And, you know, I do encourage you what you're doing. Adrian has a question. He says, what would you aim to do with sponsorship funds? Well, right now, everything that you see from the website to the marketing, to the content, to the research, that all gets done by the two people that you're seeing on the screen right now. Uh, and we have one other guy, Mike, who helps us and he does kind of the, the more marketing side and our social media stuff. Uh, but essentially everything from idea generation to researching it, to tasting people, to finally getting him on, to recording, to post-production, Everything is kind of done by us at this point. And what sponsorship will allow us to do is kind of outsource a lot of the things that effectively we shouldn't be doing. A lot of the editing, a lot of the kind of the research as well about how we pull, like, for example, in our upcoming episodes, we're going to use a lot of external media as well, like from documentaries and things like that. The process of trying to get rights and all that stuff takes a long time. So a lot of that stuff we want to kind of outsource to other people. And that's really where a large percentage of the sponsorship money we really go for. Yeah, to give you an example, the AIG funding that's allowed us to go to whatever three conferences we ended up going to in the last year and allowed us to create a lot more content out of it. Thanks. And Anusha has a question saying, following this great success, can you describe your vision for Exploration Radio going forward? Yeah, look, embedded within Exploration Radio, but and I have slightly different aims. If, if you've noticed from some of the podcasts we've done, it's very clear that Armored is on a, a personal journey to learn how to run an exploration company or something along those lines. He's got a more of an economic bent than I have. And myself, you'll see that I'm just fascinated at the romance of exploration itself. Both of those are embedded in our vision as to where we go, and we can probably describe them separately and integrated, but certainly more diverse content that's more multidisciplinary outside of the field that we currently sit in. I mean, the things that interest me, most of the stuff that I've become interested in now is way beyond geology. I personally think of exploration is well, way beyond just economic geology. And that's one of the things I want to learn more personally. And one of the beauties of a podcast is that we can open up the mic and let you come along for our personal journeys. And that way you get a more genuine podcast because we ourselves are trying to learn this information, let alone for uh, a wider audience. And I think, Ahmed, you might want to speak to this. You have your own personal 
learning journey as well? Yeah, I mean, like in a nutshell, Anusha, the, the easiest way I can answer is that as long as we find stuff that's interesting to us, we'll keep producing it, really. We kind of live by a really simple rule that if it's interesting to us and we want to learn about it, then we assume other people will want to do the same. And yeah, and then Steve's point is part of our dynamic that really works is that even though I kind of have different stages in our in our careers in a lot of ways. And to me, the really interesting part out of this is the fact that I get to look into topics and see the different sides, which I normally wouldn't get as part of my say, day-to-day job. And part of that, I guess my motivation is A, to kind of learn those things and B, is to to be able to democratize it to as many people as possible. Maybe for too long, we've kind of had so-called like intellectual paywall behind a lot of these things. So as a basic rule, I guess, for our future, like modus operandi in some ways, is to actually find these interesting things and try to democratize them as much as we can. For different reasons, that's something that both Steve and I are quite interested about. When we started this, we didn't really have a great goal of what we wanted to do. We just wanted to create some content and see how many people wanted to listen to it. And then we were surprised that other people wanted to listen to the same stuff that we wanted to listen to. So we are still kind of pleasantly surprised about how other people do find stuff that we find interesting. And I guess one other point I want to make, which Steve's made, is that I guess what the thing that binds us together is that we are really interested in finding analogies or you know things that are from outside our discipline to kind of make us a little bit better. And I think for too long, we've been kind of very insular about what we look at our science in a very narrow view. And part of the way we come up with topics and things like that is we take something small and we try to take as wide a view as possible. Let's take, say, exploring for deposits. You know, that's no different to how baggage handlers try to look for something or intelligence officers try to look for information through a mass of data. So that type of stuff interests us because I think that's kind of the cross-disciplinary stuff where, you know, we might learn something from some other people in a very small way. So one of the things that you guys will be gathering is that we've actually done a lot more interviews than we've released. And that's really the bottleneck in our whole process. We've done interviews, for example, on the missing MH370 plane, which we've never released because we're not really quite sure whether you guys will be interested. But that's just a fundamental search-related science of looking for a missing plane, missing treasure, hidden treasure, you name it. There are many commonalities to what we do that we can learn from. and hopefully vice versa. And those interviews, they're stacked up, ready to go. Some of them haven't worked. Some of them do work. We're just not really sure you'll be interested or not. But both Ahmed and I work. This is not our day job, which is an understatement. (laughs) Obviously, this is not a side project. We take it quite seriously, obviously, but this is not what we do. Uh, So to free us up would be magical. Absolutely. Well, I think it's amazing that you've got complementary um, interests and put together, you generate so many diverse stories. There are some questions on our chat. Andrew says, there are some really exciting discoveries across multiple commodities emerging in WA and other states at the moment. A great sign of the health of the exploration sector here. Earlier, you mentioned a large number of interviews conducted in North America relative to some of the Australian-based interviewees. Do you notice any similarities or difference in attitudes or approaches to exploration between the two regions? And if so, is there anything you think that could be learned from them? Although being cognizant that many people are actively working across global jurisdictions from their home base. That's a really good question. Do we see any differences? I'll answer from my point of view, and Steve, you can kind of talk about from your... So on this North American trip, we talked to uh, Chuck Pipke, 
who found a lot of the diamonds in northern Canada. He's kind of the starting as the Catty Diamond Mine and part of the basically a diamond industry kind of grew out of the work that he did. And we also talked to a few people that were involved in the Ivanhoe story at OU Tolgoy and a few others as well. And I guess what I find different is that the way the individuals, uh, I think, act is not really that different from one discovery to another. But the circumstances that they have to deal with, I think, are very different between, say, Australia and Canada. I think in Canada, the junior industry, I think, is economically and logistically and finance-wise completely differently set up. So how you know you as an explorer have to navigate that is very different to how you as an explorer have to navigate the industry here in Australia. And maybe that also relates to, you know, like logistically how you have to work in certain areas. The discovery story of Rekha Dick, my uncle, that's a completely different story of how you would have to go about it as opposed to exploring in Australia. The, the concept of local fixers or local people being an integrated part of your team, all of those stuff. So in short, at this point, I see a lot of similarities between, say, Chuck and uh, Mark Bennett. There's a lot of similar characteristics. The behavior is quite similar, the kind of maverick, renegade kind of thing, stubborn in some ways as well about trying to go after their goal, even in the face of completely ridiculous odds. So I think the individuals are somewhat similar. That's a very broad brushstroke way of saying it, but I think they, they have very similar attributes. But I think how they navigate different situations, I think, is very different from one place to another. Steve, I don't know if you want to say something to that. Yeah, um, I would agree with you. I think that at the more entrepreneurial end, the similarities are, are incredible. Companies set up, what we learn about the psychology of the discoverer, if you like, which reminds me of something that that's one of the things that interests me is we read a lot of these discovery stories, but a lot of them are, are narratives that are told in hindsight. What's really interesting about talking to people like Mark Bennett, Pipke and the likes, is actually getting firsthand the story, uh, warts and all. And for those of us who are active explorers, which is most of us, that's actually what we want. We don't want this perfect narrative that's told in hindsight by somebody who wasn't there. We actually want the warts. Uh, I think that's what makes for a great story. And I think those stories are amazingly similar, really, at the more entrepreneurial end. I think our big companies are very different. I think they work in a very different environment to us. And remarkably for a globalized world, I don't find either Australia or Canada looking overseas to the lessons they could learn enough for my liking. This is one of the points where I think something like a podcast kind of works in. We kind of talk about the industry being global, but if you really dig into it, you will realize that socially, culturally, economically, environmentally, you know, workplace culture, industrial organization psychology, all of these things are wildly different. You could be a company that has an asset in sub-Saharan Africa, one in Australia and one in Canada. And on face values, they could all be mining the same commodity. But the way they're structured, the way they deal with technology, uh, the way they have to look at how they deal with the payment structure, all of these things is completely different. And I think this is some of the things that I find really fascinating in that at the end of the day, we kind of say, oh, we're a global industry, a gold mine, you know, like a gold deposit or exploration here is the same as here, but it's not really the same. I mean, you can't explore in sub-Saharan Africa in the same construct that you can in interior Australia. I just don't think it works that way. And this is something that I think maybe, you know, this is just my personal opinion. I think this is a view that has kind of been sanitized out of, to some degree, of management in companies in that they see these 
things as almost like-for-like -like kind of scenarios, and I don't think they are. I think there's a lot of nuance in there that sometimes get lost, and eventually when there is some level of failure, I think it's because that we someone kind of irons out the nuance and doesn't really deal with it in an appropriate way. You know, great fodder for us uh, on, on the show because that's exactly the nuance that we want to cover. Well, we're all learning by listening to your podcast and, you know, we get CPD hours by doing so, which is great. And like you say, the experience of these people is so different depending on where they've worked and, and what they've done. And so it's extremely valuable to us all that you have developed your journalistic side, I suppose. So we do have a question here from Rocky. And Rocky says, do you intend to produce some kind of reduced summary of your interviews, similar to what Alan Trench does? Yeah, Rocky, we will happily give you the summary of every episode over a coffee. So that means you have to buy us 36 coffees and we will give you a summary of every single episode. In all honesty, we get asked this question quite a bit. And one of the reasons why we don't necessarily condense a lot of our stuff is because I think the act of condensing kind of loses some of the stuff that we want to get across. Steve kind of mentioned the long form thing. And part of that is that I know it's a pill and I know we are all in a time poor environment and all of that stuff. One of the things about long form is that it allows you to see these complicated issues for multiple facets. And so, so one of the things is that we do consciously walk away from doing condensed kind of views or condensed opinions. And part of that is also a thing for the guests is that, you know, we want them to have the time to elaborate their view rather than just a soundbite. So, you know, part of that is our design. People do tell us this and we're happy to wear that criticism. And it is something that we will maybe try where we will try to do a little bit more condensed stuff. But as our nature, we kind of think that the long form adds a little bit more nuance. And, and that's why we kind of walk away from it a lot of the times. That's actually what we think is missing is the nuance. If you listen to a presentation, somebody is giving you what they want to, to tell you. And I'm not suggesting they're dishonest in any way, but they are conveying exactly what they want to tell you. It's a one-way street. The beauty of an interactive format, including the ums and the ahs and the imperfections, is that it's actually real. And you get a chance to judge if it's video by body language. You can judge the honesty of the speaker based on the small iterations of what they're doing, as opposed to the perfection of a rehearsed presentation. So a presentation is a one-way information transfer, and a podcast is a discussion. And as a result, it's not... Uh, always clear. And that's what nuance really is. It's all about arguing or discussing over the bits and the pieces. Yes. Now you touched on this briefly, but how do you get those interesting bits of information out of these interviewees? How do you construct the interview? How do you find that perfect question? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess we don't really have a secret or a formula or anything like that. Often, I guess the way we kind of construct interviews is we start with a theme or like a topic that we want to talk about. And usually it's just that we try to find people that are going to give us as many different sides of that topic as possible. And that's really the basis fundamental of starting with, you know, what do we want to start off with an interview? And if I could say what's a, a really good interview versus a bad interview, a good interview is where the interviewee does an about, uh, you know, like a 180 to something they said at the start of the interview. Because what you're trying to get them to do is to show them that maybe they have an entrenched view, but if we did our research properly and we have all of the information from, say, the other facets, then we ask them that, you know, you have this view, but these are all the other views that people have talked about. 
And what do you think? Do you think that these have some validity to them or do you don't think they have validity? And why do you think that's the case? So at the basic level, when Steve and I kind of do the, the pre-interview, you know, run through about what we want them to get to talk about is that we obviously have an idea. We think that this person should take this position. And then we try to find out how could we get them to take another position or acknowledge that there could be another valid position. And then, and then that's kind of how the, the topic kind of grows. And sometimes, you know, people surprise us and sometimes it takes a long time to get to it. But either way, what the audience gets is they either get an explanation for why the person has the view they have, or they get an insight into that actually this person has conflicting views and maybe this topic is not as clear cut as it seemed when this person took a position earlier. Often people turn up with a clear set of aims of what they want to say, i.e. they've sort of created a presentation. but one of the things we've learned from other podcasts is often it's the second hour where the best content comes in because essentially they've run out of their preformed communication ideas. It's now a total honest conversation, just as if it's you and me in the pub and we're having a chat. If I turn up and I put down 10 ideas I want to communicate, that's a bit boring, but eventually we'll get on some interesting stuff and a little bit more honest. And so a classic for me, we go right back to the very first interview we did with Mark Bennett, when halfway through the interview, he's like, I've never really thought of that's my view before. And that is always a nice thing to see in somebody that they recognize in real time, just as if you were sitting around a campfire with them and they recognize that they need to either change their mind or had an insight themselves. But this is also where kind of the long form works to some degree. I mean, I think one of the reasons for the success of someone like Rogan is that a lot of the people that come on don't have the same level of media training that Rogan does. So over three hours, he's going to break you apart at some point. And I think he's quite openly talked about this, that he kind of constructs his interviews in the sense that, yeah, in the first hour, he asked very few questions. In the second hour, he asked slightly more. In the third hour, it's mostly him talking. The fact is that, like Steve said, that you can come in and if you're prepared for a two-hour meeting, two-hour presentation, then great, you're going to own us in the interview. But it's rare that people prepare for a two-hour meeting. So at some point, you're going to have to say something like as a direct response to what we've asked for. Heads up to all our listeners, because Ahmed and Steve are intending to break you if they interview you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but a lot of the times, like, there's a few episodes, like the John Van one, I think is a classic example. And I think the reason why it works is because John Van kind of flipped the script to us and a lot of the times asked us questions as well. And I think the voyeuristic part of it is that it's an interesting conversation. Anytime it's something interesting, we as human beings, I think, are somewhat kind of compelled to listen to it or watch it. So, and then that's kind of what is the end result of that, really. Well, Steve Sugden has a question for us. And he says, playing to Steve's romance of exploration comment, which situation, discovery or experience, would you have most liked to have been involved with? That's a tough question. Narrow to your list of top five, if you can. <laughs> yeah. I'd admit to being a student of, of great discoveries, uh, not just uh, mental exploration. I'm a, I'm a bit obsessed with, with discovery in general. Romance of exploration means somewhere, not just something that you've found, not just value adding in terms of materialism, but also where it is. So a great discovery to me has to be in an interesting, not just location, but an interesting dynamic. The reason I come back to Ahmed's uncle Saad and the Alan Jones story is even though Rick Dick hasn't worked out very well, the dynamic of working on the frontier, that, that appeals to me. That to me 
is what I mean by romance. So you prefer the distant discoveries, not the one on the side of the road that gave you a flat tyre? My ideal is uh, the middle of the Arctic or the, the middle of the jungle, preferably the Arctic, but somewhere on the frontier. If you go back to that, Rico Dick and I'm harping on about it, but what was interesting is it's the people dynamic between a local or near local and an Australian learning how to work in a local environment. I mean, that's not a story that you can teach. That's not something that can be taught. It comes with experience and quite an experience it must have been. We have another question. I'm not sure what your name is. The question is, hi guys, thanks for the interviews. What needs to stay the same in your podcast and what would you like to change? That's a good question. Um, I need to do more. The, I need to find more time. The uh, one constant bane in our scheduling is the fact that because obviously Steve has a day job that's a lot more important than mine, having to work around his schedule is a complete pill. So if you could change that, that would be great. What would we change? I mean, I think I'll go back to the, I guess, one of the things that we talked about at the start is that if you actually look at maybe, I think it's probably the first 15 or 20 episodes, you'll see that the format between all those episodes was all very different. And uh, we consciously tried to do that, actually. You know, we didn't really want to set up anything very formulaic. We didn't want to kind of do something repetitive. So we actually consciously looked at all these different formats that people do in podcasts and tried to replicate them. So from the fact of what we would keep the same, or in my view, I think we will still keep the onus of experimenting with different types of content. You know, we're not expert by any means. We, we sometimes sit down and think that, oh, yeah, is this idea going to be good, bad? I uh, don't know. So let's just try it and see how it goes. Craigstar, the way we kind of edit that together and told that story, you know, that was our attempt to do something different. So, so one thing I think that we will keep the same is that we will try different formats or different ways of doing things and just see what works and what doesn't. Uh, yeah, it's a developing um, idea. It's a developing, growing concept. Yeah, and I think, yeah, like I have a friend that does her own podcast and it's quite interesting. Like, you know, she's taking the view where she has a very set script yeah, she has now, I think, close to 100 episodes, but she has exactly the same script for every single episode. She finds what we're doing completely ridiculous. But for us, it's more of a fact that sometimes we think one format might work well for a story and sometimes another format might work really well. So we're willing to give it a shot. And sometimes it comes off and sometimes it doesn't. But, and then that's the risk that we're willing to take in that sense. And do you ever just fly by the seat of your pants and change your approach sort of on the fly? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times. I mean, ultimately, you don't know what the episode's going to be until you do the interview. Right? Like sometimes we think the interview is going to be fantastic and we do the interview and it's terrible. So we have to kind of think of some other way of presenting that content out. And then that does happen often, actually. I mean, you know, it's just part of the nature of that. We are interviewing people that aren't media trained, so sometimes they're going to be good and sometimes it's not going to be good. And that's on us to then figure out how to make it more compelling. So it's been a real surprise how many people who are quite senior in this industry we've interviewed have been seriously nervous before talking to us. I mean, I'm sure he won't mind, but Horonsky was one of them. And that seems incredible to think of somebody who's you know pervasive in our industry. He turned up to an interview and hadn't actually considered that the shoe was on the other foot. We're in charge. <laughs> <laughs> and he's very experienced in presentation. Yeah, that interview still works, but we've had episodes with uh, similar people who that haven't. They simply never got over their nerves. And uh, if you've only got an hour structured interview with somebody, then you're not going to generate good content. They never get over their nerves. I mean, the whole point of this is there might be a microphone sticking out of the middle 
of our image, but it is just a chat. And so it should be fairly informal. It's amazing what the microphone does to the dynamic. Go back to the, the question, you know, like how, what would we change? So what we would keep the same is this kind of experimenting with content. I'm, I'm not sure when we're at whatever, 30 something episodes, 35 episodes. So when we get to maybe 50, we'll look back and say which formats we really like and which ones we don't and which had better success than others. And maybe we'll stick to some of them or maybe we'll just keep experimenting from that point on as well. But one thing uh, that we would change is, you know, we would love to incorporate more content from, uh, I guess, outside of our industry. Steve mentioned MH370. There was so much media coverage and things like that. You know, it would be interesting to kind of incorporate a lot of this material in. So that's something we would definitely do because it adds a little bit more flavor to why we came up with certain topics. Some of our ideas actually come from other industries and then we try to find examples of in our industry and we find it. Then, you know, we kind of develop into a topic. And we all so have we, interest across different industries. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think in order to pull like someone in from from another industry that may not have the same relevance. You know, it's nice to kind of find an example from the tech industry that we could show and exactly how that they solved a problem that we're struggling with. So, you know, to draw those links between those, you know, it's something that we would probably do a lot more. So that's something that I would probably change tomorrow if you were able to, is to kind of diversify our content a little bit or the lessons out of the content a little bit, if you could. So do you get uh, feedback directly from your um, podcast? Uh, yeah, we have no shortage of feedback from people, either like personally or through an electronic means. We're totally happy with that. If you don't like something, tell us. If you like something, tell us. We consciously experiment with these things. So we're happy to hear whatever opinions people have about it, positive, negative, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. Not everybody will like every episode. It's important to realize that we are very much in an experimental phase. And so you might not like one episode. That's happened. That's pretty normal. So you shouldn't expect to love every single thing, but hopefully the general gist of what we're doing is interesting to you. Uh, we've got a comment from Graham Begg. Thanks, fellows, for providing a bridge, for sharing insights and inspiration. And his question is, discovery or breakthrough is often presented as a sanitized linear progression. Have you found this perception to be very deceptive? And what can we learn from this? Taylor made for you, Steve. Yeah, okay. that's Biggie setting me up big time. Well done, mate. Yeah, and look, there's nothing linear. It's actually quite hilarious to realize just how much discovery stories fitted into a narrative post-discovery. Most of them involve uh, huge moments of serendipity. In fact, I'll change that. All of them involve huge moments of serendipity. Um, I did the episode on serendipity. It's something that interested me for a long period of time. I, I personally think it's something that we don't deal well with take it as an insult to our science. We need to realize that exploration is essentially a search for something quite rare and it's, it's not something that's common and we shouldn't pretend that it's common. We should be actually learning from other industries that are not so linear in their progression towards discoveries either. Absolutely. And I think that's a great last question. And we greatly appreciate your time, especially you, Steve, and Ahmed, you not feeling so well. Thank you very much for this evening, for your time and a very interesting discussion. No, thanks a lot for lining it up. I have to say thanks a lot for AIG for giving us this chance. Yeah, you guys have been great supporters of us. So anytime you want to do this, where, as you can see, Steve and I have no problem yakking on about stuff. Oh, this has been a fantastic tech talk for our Wednesday. So thank you so much. 
Exploration Radio is brought to you by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford. This episode was produced by Ahmad Salim, edited by Humayun Mir, and recorded remotely via video conference on May 27, 2020. If you'd like to find out more about this podcast, then check us out on explorationradio.com, or you can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you like this podcast, then consider becoming a sponsor to help us continue producing more of this content. You can email us on info at expirationradio.com to find out more about sponsorship packages. Until next time, let's keep exploring. Exploration Radio.